Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor Paul Francisco. Join us as we are pointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in God's holy word. This morning, as we just read from Scripture, we find ourselves in Titus chapter 2. We pick up for where we left off last week. Uh, I'll give you a little disclaimer. We, I had originally intended for us to go from verse 3 to 8, and it was very clear as I was trying to finish this sermon that I either could keep you guys here for an hour and 20 minutes or turn it into two sermons. So I liked it for the latter, for your sake. So I didn't want uh, you to kiss to fall out the window as I, I speak. But um, if you're visiting with us, um, it is our regular habit of expository preaching. What that means is, is what we do is, is we go through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, we don't skip anything. The agenda of our sermon or the word is the agenda of the text. And so when we come across things that are difficult, uh, I'm forced to deal with it. When we come across things um, that are glorious, we, we delight in it. Um, ultimately, um, we find the meat of the word through this, and it is for the health of our church that we, we do this. And so this morning, we will be looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, and particularly uh, di- discipleship in the church, and I'm going to call it part one, biblical womanhood. And um, men, uh, don't worry, next week we will be dealing very specifically with your role as the Lord uh, allows us to dig deeper in his word as well. And so if you have your Bibles in front of you, I, I ask you go ahead and follow along. We will definitely be digging deep there. And before we do that, um, let me share a few thoughts with you. In our day and age, it is not uncommon to see movies, TV shows, advertisements, or even see signs at our public restrooms pushing on us the acceptance of same-sex marriages, gender-neutral acceptance, and so forth. This past week in Congress, a congressional official led a a prayer, and what I would consider a watered-down prayer, and he closed with these words, amen and a woman found it quite odd to hear um, that. And that just goes to show you of the influence of our society and what is going on, that we are so fearful to actually hold true to our convictions that we have to be so inclusive that we would change our own truths and understandings of the Word of God. We live in a culture that is drowning in gender confusion. The lines have become blurred, and we are groping about trying to understand what it means for a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman, what it means for a man to be masculine and what it means for a woman to be feminine. Never has the church needed more desperately to hear the words of Titus 2 verses 1 through 8. This is a text that makes God's plan God's assignments, God's roles for men and women in the church, plain and clear. 
In this passage of scripture, Paul outlined his uh, God's expectations for each of the four major groups in the church in terms of gender and age. We, we dealt with last week older men and um, a little bit about older women. This week we'll talk a little bit more about older women and younger women. And, and next, next week we'll talk about younger men. He defines godly living that is consistent with sound doctrine. Um, the word may not appear in the text, but there is one driving force that I think you will see clearly in these verses and can be summed up in one very important word, discipleship, discipleship. See, for those of us in Christ, I would argue that sound doctrine is essential for healthy and godly living. God has intended for us to know him and what he requires from us. It is through sound teaching in Scripture we are able to pass down the truths of its generation to the generations through discipleship. Last week we spoke to the fact that sound doctrine is so important for the church, and teaching it produces mature men and mature women in Christ. And this begs two questions: How? Does God intend for us to receive teaching in sound doctrine? The answer is that we learn what discipleship is, what it means. Secondly, the question we would ask is, why is discipleship so important? And I believe the text will show us today and next week that God's assignments for men and women in the church are described and are handed down through discipleship. So for this week, I want to call it discipleship part one, the pursuit of God's design for the church through biblical womanhood and pursuing God's assignment. And next week we will look at biblical manhood and pursuing God's assignments. So as we look in the text in verses three through five, specifically, we read older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior and not slanderers or slaves to much wine. We dealt with this last week in more depth. Uh, we hear the words hanging at the end of that verse. They are to teach what is good. And what is that good? Verse four and five tells us, and so to train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The gospel is to produce godliness in the lives of those within the church, whether old or young, male or female. Here in Titus 2, verses 1 through 8, we see that older men are to disciple younger men, and older women are to disciple younger women. In our text today, we will look at what God has to say about discipleship and very specifically biblical womanhood. If you are a woman in the church, you are called to a special task. You are to be exercising biblical womanhood. Our culture and society are trying to drown you out and confuse your 
feminism as God has designed it. We saw last week that Paul lays it out in verse 3, which is the task. Older women are to be, to be reverent, not slanderers, slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. They are to mature women in Christ are to exercise what I called the four B's last week, right? The four B's of biblical womanhood in the church. Be reverent, meaning being dignified and honorable. To be truthful, not slanderers. To be level-headed or not slaves to wine, right? So when you're a slave to wine, uh, that it can distort the clarity of your mind. It can distort um, the truth of God's word, the, the reality in which we know. And, and lastly, we saw there at the end of verse 3, which is where we pick up, at, it says, be a teacher. Teach what is good. So why? Why, why would God say such a thing? Why would Paul use, God use Paul, empowered by the Spirit, to say such things? What is the purpose of exercising these character traits? The answer, answer I think you will see here in the text is to teach or disciple younger women in the faith. Now, very specifically, you see the words older and, and younger within the context uh, of our English translation, but um, really, as I explained last week, uh, it, particularly when it spoke to men, it used the same word as what we saw for pastors and elders. What it means is the connotation of mature men in Christ. And then for older women, that would be mature women in Christ. And then here, it speaks to very specifically younger women, not uh, necessarily of maturity, but younger women who are in Christ. So I ask you, women of faith, are you striving and pursuing holiness in your own life? Would you be classified as a mature woman of faith? Are you living out God's assignment in discipleship. And if this is true of you, what are you to be teaching? What is it that you're supposed to be teaching in discipleship, the ministry of discipleship? Paul lays out in verses four through five that God's assignment as a younger woman. He gives them seven assignments or jobs. They are to be pursuing and living out these tasks in biblical womanhood. These seven tasks are not to be dismissed or taken lightly. They have value and importance in God's design. And they honor the Lord bringing glory to Christ. These tasks demonstrate beauty in biblical feminism. So what are these seven tasks in God's assignment for younger women in the faith? Let me give these to you. Women, if you want to write these down. Men, if you want to write these down. The first two are love your husband and love your children. And as you will hear in a little bit, it's peculiar that Paul says it this way. Because in all other scripture, Paul does not actually call or exhort women in this particular area. 
but here he sees fit. And then thirdly, we see to be self-controlled, to be pure, fourthly. Fifth, be a homemaker, a homemaker. Uh, Sixth, to be good. And seven, which seems to be an ugly word in our society, is to be subject to your husband. Another word, excuse me, another word, submission. So we will look at these seven tasks and God's assignment for younger women in the faith. And first, we're going to deal with uh, the first two together, and that means love your husband and your children. The directive is first given in verse 4, okay? It says to what? Train young women to love their husbands and children. Okay, so this is the directive, the command, the, uh, the admonishment, very specifically. But it comes right after telling older women to teach, right? Paul admonishes and encourages them to train, advise, counsel. Who? Counsel younger women to love their husbands and children. And is, interestingly enough, this is the only time in the Bible where Wives are encouraged to love their husband. Husbands are exhorted numerous times to do so. But Paul was concerned here that a woman is committed under the lordship of Christ, committed to her marriage by loving her husband. The way a couple loves each other models for their children the way they ought to love their future spouses. Also, it demonstrates how to love or give love towards others. I like the way Daniel Aiken puts it here. He says it this way. He says, the fact is, we do not so much fall in love as we learn to love. Uh, That's pretty profound truth right there. We don't, we don't, so much fall in love as we learn to love. What a great thing it is for daughters to learn how to love future husbands by watching how their mother loves their dad. Few things are more natural for a mother than loving her children. However, a young mother must move beyond this by living out a lifestyle cultivating in her children godly character. The moral, most important way a mother can love her children is to love them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This comes through God's grace and with her own godly character, as we will see here shortly, modeling and behaving in such a way that makes Christ beautiful in her actions. Again, borrowing some thoughts from Daniel Aiken, he puts it this way. He says, cultural pressure and expectations have robbed many women of blessings and joys of homemaking and motherhood. The feminist movement made promises in which it could never deliver. The fallout has been mammoth and disastrous, and we are still in the midst of the whirlwind. The first century women suffered from this problem as well. And so Paul confronted it head on. He first exhorts older women to teach what is good. 
Then he tells them to teach this to younger women. What good teaching did Paul have in mind? I think he answers this in verses 4 and 5. But how does one do this? Verse 5 gives the key ingredients for fulfilling God's design. How do you love your husband and your children? By exercising self-control. By being pure. By being a homemaker. By being good. By being submissive. So let's look at these individually. Exercising self-control. Like a mature woman in Christ, younger women should seek to be sensible, self-controlled. To exercise common sense and sound judgment. The best way to learn this behavior and produce this character is to set up close and personal relationships with other godly women. Life on life discipleship relationships. Young women learn best to live out and balance and wisdom by watching and learning from mature women in Christ. It's not that they can't figure it out on their own necessarily. And it's not that they don't have the word to to show them this, but to, to see it modeled, to see what it looks like as best seen and helped from other godly, mature women in Christ. Next, we deal with the ingredient of being pure. The Lord calls young women to purity. Her moral life is above reproach. She is by reputation, reputation, sorry, I'm stumbling over my words this morning, a one-man kind of woman. A one-man kind of woman. She is faithful to her marriage and only gives herself to her husband. The man in her life trusts her and is confident in her. When he sees the God she serves, His own character is reflected in her life. And it radiates forth from a heart of submission to Christ. As I've watched my own wife over the years, it gives me great joy. That's kind of funny. My wife's name is Joy. Joy, it gives me great joy. (laughs) Sorry, sometimes that happens to me. To see the grace in her. I have grown deeper in love with her and cherish the gift that she is to me. The way she speaks to others about me is both a gift of grace from God and has been taught to her by other godly women in the faith. Let me give you some practical things, um, some ways to help guard your purity in this way. Keeping yourself open to your husband. What do I mean by that? Um, ladies, your phone, your email, etc. you name it. It, it. You make it accessible to your husband, 
right? There's no secrets. Your dialogue with other men is under your husband's leadership, under his view. You don't find yourself alone with other men in person or in other means of communication. In other words, you're not at night in another room on a phone with another man, right? You have conversation in your husband's presence if possible. Or if, if not possible, your husband is made immediately aware of the conversation. You can copy them on an email or your text. These are just practical you know, ways and means in which you can guard your purity. This is something that I'm so thankful for. Me and my wife, we have open, very transparent lives to one another. There is no email, text, phone call that she doesn't have access to from me. Likewise, for her, for me. I mean, we could read it in a moment's note. She has all my passwords. I have all her passwords. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing is secret. We don't keep secrets from one another. And if there is something we want to surprise one another, we just tell, like my wife did over Christmas, honey, if you see this charge on the bank account, it's for you. Don't, don't get alarmed. I want to surprise you. Okay, cool. I got something cool, right? So, I mean, the, the point is, is we keep ourselves open to one another. The bottom line is that you're guarding your purity, keeping yourself accountable. You don't keep secrets from your husband, likewise husbands from wives, all right? And you live a life of transparency towards each other. And then particularly not self-righteous or self-absorbed, particularly as we look in this context as well. Purity is something that we think about more than ourselves. It is for our spouse. It is for God. It is for the pursuit of holiness. And next, we will look at being a homemaker, okay? So what is the point of peace in the church if there is no peace in the home? What is the point of peace in the church if there is no peace at home? Think about that. This is an area in which Satan has waged great war against the people of God so fiercely. This is spiritual warfare. There is no other great, greater place within humanity amongst Christians in which can bring about either a great witness for Christ or a distortion of the truth than in the home. You see, make no mistake, beloved. The evil one is waging war against the church. And the areas of sexual immorality, marriage, and parenting are some of his greatest victories. Biblical marriages and relationships in the family are so important to protect. For young wives and mothers, one way of guarding against this is to be a homemaker. This means that a young woman's heart is inclined towards the home. It is her primary base of operation and main focus. Proverbs 31 teaches us that a diligent homemaker may be involved in many activities and that she is not lazy or a busybody, nor distracted by outside pursuits. 
She's not distracted by these outside things and her responsibilities. They don't eat up her precious time and attention. You see, women of faith, this woman that the Bible is describing here is not seduced by the world, which tells her she, has, she is wasting her time and energy at home and that the only that only a career woman has purpose, is truly satisfied by exercising her talents outside of the home. Hear me, women of faith. Hear me, men of faith, saints. A personal career is not your ultimate goal. Being a homemaker is a reflection of what God has planted in the heart of woman. A wife and mother being made female was God's design and in his image. The blessings and joy she discovers as a wife, a mother, and a homemaker can never be matched by a career that can never make good on its promises. Being a homemaker is not an institutionalized form of bondage. Contrary to what some may think or believe. It's not a slavery that she needs to be freed from. It is actually, in God's design, the greatest context for a woman to experience liberation and liberty. She is set free by the plan of God to be a woman created, that God created and saved her to be. And I know some of you are probably thinking, well, can a woman work outside a home and all that? We'll deal with that in just a moment, okay? We, we hear this other characteristic uh, action uh, that, that Paul says here in, in when he says, be good, okay? A young woman should be kind. She should be like, Jesus, who was compassionate and loving, gentle, considerate, gracious, and merciful, even to those who may not treat her the same. She is a good woman. You live a life worthy of the gospel and are thought of well by others, non-believers alike. You are giving and thoughtful not selfish or judgmental. Let me give you some examples. When somebody, particularly in the church, has a baby, you look quickly for ways to serve them. Perhaps you offer assistance in practical ways like prepare a meal or offer to pray for them, send gifts and thank you cards. Perhaps you text another sister in the church and take time to check on them. Give them words of encouragement. Perhaps call them and speak words of praise towards them. These are beautiful, godly things. And as we turn to this hard and what seems to be an ugly word in our society, being submissive, a woman is subject to her home husband we will camp out here for the rest 
of our time because it's so important to understand this correctly. And this is why I wanted to deal with this um, longer and not try to rush through it because I know questions will come about. Submission means to yield one's will to the leadership and direction of another. Before all you husbands and men in the room get excited to hear this, just know that, that there is submission required of husbands, children, and all believers. God knows our struggles and our hearts better than we do. And he knows this is an area due to sin where women may particularly struggle in. Don't forget about our time earlier last, or I guess, I guess it was last year now, um, uh, when we spent in Ephesians, particularly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, where, where we are called, all of us, not just women, all are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? That's the key to understanding this exhortation towards women right now. That's the key to understanding anything when it comes to submission. It is to submit out of reverence for Christ. But why submission? If you are a Christian, we are to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he, Christ, is the ultimate head. Submission equals obedience to God. Submission equates to reverence for Christ. Submission in marriage brings about a gospel-centered marriage in God's design. Submission is more of an attitude than it is an action. Submission is more of an attitude than it is an action. Contrary to popular misconceptions, there is no inferiority in submissiveness. We say plainly in the nature of our own triune God, the, Son, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equally God. And yet for the purpose of redemption, the Son submits his assignment to the Father. When wives are willingly following the leadership of their husband, trusting that he will do what is right, she gives herself over in what is called biblical submission. And by doing this, she will honor God and his word. She will reach in a more effective manner the heart of her husband. Think about that. Your biblical submissiveness to your husband will reach the heart of your husband. So what does submission in a gospel-centered marriage look like in principle? It may mean that you don't agree in a particular area. Perhaps such as where to live. Maybe a house to buy. What church to attend. Perhaps in the way you should school your children. However, the wife is willing to submit to her husband's decision out of reverence for Christ. Uh, I like how John Piper kind of gives you, gives a kind of understanding here. He says, in rare cases where the two of you, after arguing for days about what should be done, it's a draw. You haven't 
been persuaded by him and he hasn't persuaded you. The submissive wife says to the husband, I'm going to trust you to do what is right here. And she may disagree with which way he is going and yet still submits. But, husbands, but men of faith, a good husband may at that very moment use his privilege to go her way. He may love her so and not use his position of authority, but yield out of love to serve and honor her. Wives, is submission an area of struggle for you? Do you find yourself wanting to take control? If this is true of you, which I believe the Bible speaks to, it's because of Genesis 3.16 and the fall that shows us why. Genesis 3.16 says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I don't want you to misunderstand this. If you read it on surface, you could really misunderstand this. This is not a godly desire. This is a distortion of truth. The fall has brought about a desire for the woman to want to take the man's place in leadership. The idea that he doesn't deserve to lead or he doesn't lead well in your eyes or the fact that men are willing to ab abdicate their role in biblical leadership. And women saying, I can do it better. And the fall has brought about that the man is wanting to put the woman in her place. When he says in Genesis 3.16, he says, he shall rule over you. It's not rule over you in a harmonious way. Men want to abuse their position of authority. Here in our culture, our Hispanic culture, particularly in El Paso, we're familiar with the word mochismo, right? Mochismo. I am the man. She is supposed to submit to my will. She is supposed to serve me. All right, this is not godly. This is not what God desires. This is a result of the fall and the result of your own sin. But then you might ask the question, should a wife always submit? Is there ever a reason not to follow? I can give you one qualifying reason to never submit. Do not follow into sin. See, as John Piper puts it this way, a wife never follows her husband into sin. So the headship of the husband is not the ultimate headship. Christ is the ultimate head, and she will always seek to do the right thing and not sin if her husband calls her to follow him into sin. Biblical submission doesn't mean women don't have value or not permitted to speak or have an opinion or can't work. Look at the Proverbs 31 woman. There were four things that she didn't do. Let, let's read it together. Proverbs 31. I want to look from verse 10 to the end of this. 
I want you just to hear what God has to say about the Proverbs woman. Verse 10, the Holy Spirit writes, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Don't you see how beautiful this is, women of faith? Don't you see how magnificent the beauty and majesty in God's design for women, men of faith? You see, there were four things that she didn't do. She wasn't a woman who strict, strictly worked in her home with her and with her children. She didn't remain silent when she had an opinion. She offered words of wisdom. She wasn't weak and passive in her presentation. She didn't refrain from making her own mark on the world. And so, as you consider what we were talking about earlier about being a homemaker, it doesn't mean you can't work. It doesn't mean you can't do things outside the home, although those are glorious and honorable things. But it does mean that your heart is inclined to your home. You see, the Proverbs 31 woman did the following. She honored and respected her husband. He was known 
amongst the elders in the land. He was respected because of her. She fed and clothed her family with the healthiest and finest she could afford. So her hard labors were once again inclined to the home. She invested the use of her skills in a personal business. She bought land. She planted a vineyard. Why? For her family. She spoke wisely and kindly to others. She was thought well by others, non-believers in other words. She dressed herself attractively, but with modesty. She didn't have to flaunt what she got, right? The way our society wants to tell women. She helped the poor. She had an open hand. She was generous. And she said, come, I'll care for you. Her heart was turned towards her home and those under her care. But she didn't lie down with no value or desire to do good for herself and others. She honored her husband, worked hard for her family, and was well thought of. You see, in biblical womanhood as a wife, submission is good. It's God-honoring and Christ-exalting. It's a glorious thing. You demonstrate, as Proverbs 31 says here, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You demonstrate the fear of the Lord more. You have value and worth. You were created in an image and likeness of God. But you were created with a unique beauty and role within marriage. A willing submission to authority of God's design in marriage is not only a blessing and honor to both her husband and family, but to God. Women, wives, daughters of God, do you find yourselves resisting or wanting to reject this idea of submission? What about your security, you might ask? What if your husband doesn't deserve it? He's not leading well or providing well in your eyes. Don't let your hearts be deceived. The false god of security is an illusion. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Where does authority and submission come from? God. God is your ultimate security, and his provision is sufficient. So in summary, biblical womanhood consists of pursuing God's assignment for you. She is to love her husband and children. She is to be self-controlled and pure, a homemaker, good. And to submit to her husband out of reverence to Christ. This is biblical womanhood, putting its beauty on display. God's true design for feminism. It is a product of human flourishing in the gender distinctions. 
godly women who build up the church in love. Through their speech and their conduct, they make the gospel attractive. Oh, how you women of faith should see the gift you have to compliment godly men of faith. To give honor to your husband and teach your children. Giving glory to God through God's design for biblical womanhood in this way. And mature women in Christ, pursue discipleship with younger women. Teach what is good. Helping younger women pursue God's assignment. Christian women, saints, daughters of God, what is your heart's devotion today? Ask God to help your heart pursue biblical womanhood. If you are a mature woman in Christ, teach what is good. If you're a younger woman in Christ, pursue God's assignment for you. Christian men, brothers in the Lord, are you cultivating and encouraging biblical womanhood in your marriage before your daughters? Perhaps your leadership to your wife and children have been substandard. Repent and turn to Christ. Acknowledge the beauty and wisdom of God and his design for discipleship and lead your wife in pursuing her assignment. Friend, maybe you are listening today and this is the first time you've heard this. Perhaps this all seems a bit foolish to you. You know, God has designed it through the foolishness of preaching to both save us and free us to be changed by his word. You see that submission out of reverence to Christ is a calling to you. Submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ Realizing that you don't got it all figured out. Life is not all peachy and clean. And that your own heart is wicked. And you need Christ and his word to transform you. The world will fail you. You will be left empty and never satisfied. You will not flourish outside of God's design. Turn to Christ. Taste and see that he is good. Friend, he's calling. He's opening the door. All you have to do is enter in today and receive the gift of grace. Receive the gift of Christ. You can come into his family today. As we close our time, I want to read, looking back from last year in chapter 5 of Ephesians, 
I would like to read for you Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and to make melody to the Lord with your heart. We have a song in our heart, beloved. Give and thank always. And giving for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Praise be to God for his word this morning. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday from 9 a.m. to 9.50 a.m. for Connections Sunday School and from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. for our worship service. We're located at 1385 Northwestern Drive on the west side of El Paso along with our hosting sister church, Mission de Gracia. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308 1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.